Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of the Invisible Truths podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and this week I am here with Kamaka Randall. Kamaka and I uh, were fellow seminarians at Christian Theological Seminary here in Indianapolis. She is also an Autism Speaks Advocacy Volunteer Ambassador, and she is working to start the Black Autism Support Society uh, with her husband. Uh, so she's very involved in activist spaces as it relates to autism. Uh, she's a proponent of womanist theology and uh, altogether just a wonderful, uh, wonderful person. So I'm so excited, Kamaka, to have you on. Welcome this morning. Thank you, Ben. Welcome. I'm excited as well. Um, I enjoy sharing time with, in space with you as always. So thank you. So let's just jump on in. Um, you know, we the, the the focus of this episode today is going to be talking a lot about autism uh, and the intersection of race primarily. Um, and so I'm wondering for you, can you describe the moment where you began to realize that your child um, was autistic and, and what was that like and what feelings came up for you and how did those shift over time? Um, so, so thank you for that question. I actually had three separate moments because I have three children and they all have been diagnosed to be on the autism mm. spectrum. Okay. So every um, interaction, every diagnosis was received differently. Um, in the very beginning, my oldest was born in 1998. So he was about six years old before, I mean, initially the doctor said, oh, boys talk later than girls. And so we um, we hesitated. We didn't go right into therapy. You know, so he didn't get like that early intervention. It wasn't until first grade that we had a teacher um, that was challenging you know, his learning processes, thought maybe he um, knew what he was doing but just didn't want to do the work. And so was, you know, wanting to, like, hold him back in the first grade. And that's the first time that we started hearing the word autism. Um, We had a school psychologist that said, hey, I think there was something going on with this kid. Can we evaluate him for autism? We had no idea what it was. I thought I heard it in a movie somewhere before. And so, and you never hear about it in our community, right? Um, And so we just started on research. I had, luckily I had an aunt that was a um, licensed, you know, social worker. She had her master's in social work. And so she was explaining to me how the evaluation would go and all of that. The feelings that came up for me were more like, um, what did I do wrong? You know, how how did, there was a lot of guilt. You know, did I do something during the pregnancy? Was I not the perfect mom? Whereas was I not doing all the um, baby, like, you know, reading to your child and all of that stuff? Because I was trying to finish my, my bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of guilt and then trying to have, to, having to explain to my family what that meant because nobody that I knew knew anything about autism except for my aunt that had the social work background. For um, my second son, we had moved here to Indianapolis. He was two um, before we started seeing signs, and so we did a lot of the early intervention. But that was that I went into a depression with that one because I was thinking, okay, the first one was already difficult. Now I have two. Um, and with Kyron, he was a little more difficult because he he acted out a lot. So we went to the Children's Research Group, we went to Riley, we went to all these places to try to figure out how to help us with him. And then when they put him into a special needs um, preschool classroom, that like took me like down this dark rabbit hole. 
Um, and then with Kamaya, because the prevalence in boys is a lot higher in, than girls. It's usually like three, for, for every three boys, you may have one, one girl that's diagnosed with autism. So it's oh, like wow. a 75% you know, difference. Hmm. Um, and so when I knew we were having a girl, I was excited. I was like, okay, this is going to be my neurotypical child. And then I was already thinking she's going to help take care of her brothers when they get older, like all of these things. Mm-hmm. When she, we started seeing signs early, she um, wasn't sitting up, like, you know, by the time she was supposed to. She didn't have the muscle tone. She had trouble walking. And so they started, the word autism came up again. You know, and we had a lot of early intervention. She had four therapists before she was even, like, two years old. Uh-huh. And that, like, knocked all the wind out of me because I was thinking, I have three children, and they all have been diagnosed I must be getting, I must be being punished for something, right? Like something, (laughs) we didn't do something right. Um, So yeah, it was a lot of grief, grieving of what my, what I thought our children would do. I thought they would play basketball and they would do all these things and they would be like, we'd be going to all these games and cheering them on. And um, we had to grieve the idea of what we thought our child would be Mm -hmm. and accept them for um, the new reality of of who they were going to be. Man, that is a powerful sentiment right there. Grieving the idea of what we thought our child would be and accept them for the for who they were or who they are. Uh, I mean, I think that's something you have to do as a parent anyway, because we all come into parenthood with these assumptions and hopes and dreams that aren't our child's. <laughs> They're ours. Um, but I can imagine it being even more so, you know, when you do have children on the spectrum. Um, one thing that stood out to me before I get to our second question, you used the phrase neurotypical. Um, can you talk a little bit about that phrase? Um, so neurotypical generally has been used to identify if you have a child that is not on the spectrum. So they're more like neurologically, t- you know, typical of what, of what you would expect your child to be. Okay. Um, whereas the opposite of that would be, you know, someone that falls somewhere on the spectrum, which is a very b- broad spectrum to be on. Hmm. Yeah. And is it expensive? Is the phrase explicitly used when talking about being on the the autism spectrum, or is it used in other spaces as well? Do you know? I, I have not heard of it used in other spaces. Okay, okay that's helpful. Um, all right, so our, our, the the second question I want to jump into or ask, um, you kind of alluded to it already. You know, I don't often hear a lot about autism in the black community uh, in black spaces. Um, and so I'm wondering, one, if that's just my perception. Perhaps I'm just not running with the right crowds. Um, but, but, <laughs> but if you've experienced that as well, can you, can you, can you speak to, to why you think that is and, and how you think that might be shifting? Yeah, so basically, you know, again, when we first got our diagnosis, we had no idea. You know, we grew up in Flint, Michigan and, you know, grew up in the hood. And so we didn't know anybody that had heard anything about this. Um, it wasn't until we started hearing about Holly Robinson Pete and Tisha Campbell, um, Tony Braxton, you know, these famous black moms that had children on the spectrum that became advocates. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you started to see this shift. I think even um, Ronnie DeVoe from New Edition, now I've seen him with an autism bracelet on as well. And so um, so he must know somebody or maybe one of his his children are impacted. So it's not until you would see um, black celebrities that were standing out and, and raising money and writing books um, about what their experience has been like with, with raising these children. Um, but before that, it was very, and I, and I think, Ben, I think it goes back to, like, to slavery, mm. you know, where even with mental health, we, um, you know, we were taught to try to hide all of our deficiencies, 
right? Mm-hmm. And to try to make, make it seem like we were okay. Because um, back then that could be very detrimental um, for the person that was trying to survive slavery. So if you're trying to survive slavery and then you have any type of like mental health issue or disability, you are not um, as, worthy, as worthy or as, um, I don't know, valuable, valuable I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, than, than someone who was like a strong person that could like take anything, right? And so we've always been taught, I think as a people to hide the things that are um, different or not right with us, where what where society would think is not right. And so that's kind of what, um, you know, we, in the beginning, we, we were isolated, you know, we were isolated from our friends. Our friends didn't understand why our, ch- our kids would spin around in a circle and look at the ceiling fan mm-hmm. or would be afraid of, um, you know, certain things, you know, certain noises or didn't like, you know, corn on the cob because it was too mushy. Like there was like mm. these all these weird things. And like, you know, older people would say, oh, he's just spoiled. You just need to spank him. Mm-hmm. You know, and you cannot if you have a child that's having a meltdown, you cannot spank them into calming down like mm-hmm. you just are just pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah. Um, and so I think that which is part of the reason that we are passionate about like the Black Autism Support Society, because how often I mean, we, we stop taking our kids to like the family cookout and, you know, mm. things like that, because if they had a meltdown, we had to do the scoop and run like, OK, who's going to yeah. grab them? Let's get out of there. Because you know we are we are not as forgiving, I think, in some of those cases. Whereas I think in the majority culture, um, they're a little more accepting. I can't imagine how isolating it has to, or at least had to feel, to not have that community support. You know, as you all are feeling overwhelmed, trying to navigate, trying to learn, educate yourselves, be the best parents you can be, to not have your community um, support you in the ways that you needed, and not not necessarily because they didn't want to, but I imagine they just didn't really know how. Um, that, that had to feel really difficult. Maybe it still does. It, it does, um, and it did. You know, having, you know, your best friends since high school and, you know, not being able to, like, little things that your kids would do would, like, irritate them or mm. um, having to explain just the weird, like, just the difference in, in my kids. You know, my, my kids have always, like, loved church. They've always been very churchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even my, my oldest son, when he couldn't really talk, you know, clearly he would stand, he would, I would wake up and he would be at the side of our bed. Like, what service are we going to today? Are we going to the nine o'clock? Or <laughs> you know, it's like, it's time for church. <laughs> um, and so not understanding that, you know, and having, he would, and then of course there's the hyper-focusing. So hyper-focusing is, um, you know, common in autism where you like get so focused on something that you, you may lose track of time or you can't mm. see anything else or like any of that. And so my older son would be, he would hyper-focus on like preachers and <laughs> and church. He wanted to watch all the old Kirk Franklin VHS oh, videos. No. <laughs> and so like we would have people that say, well, he's obsessing over that and you shouldn't let him do that all the time. But what we, find out, what we found out about our kids is that the things that they fixated on makes them who they are and that's going to be what, um, what they do in the future. So now my oldest son, mm. he's an MD at a church. Like he studies preachers because he knows what key you're going to come into or he mm-hmm. I mean, he has perfect pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the things that were. But in the beginning, we couldn't even take him to church because it was too loud and he would cry. Yeah. You know, yeah. so if you will like hone into those things that make them unique and special, what we found out is that that is their gift. Mm. Yeah. That is so beautiful. Um, I, you know, I'm wondering as we talk about church and community and, you know, both of us going to seminary, that's that's a big part of who we are. Um, how have you found 
that this journey as a, a mother to children on the spectrum, how has it impacted your theology, your spiritual walk, either in the ways that you've thought about it in experientially? Just what, what shifts or changes have you noticed? Um, I noticed that I'm, I'm more, I advocate more for um, acceptance in those spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we see in the majority culture or even in larger churches, they may have like an official special needs ministry whereas we don't necessarily have that in our church. So it's caused me to look more at, um, even when you're a marginalized community, that we marginalize within our own community, right? So if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, is it just straight Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. Is it just, you know, cisgendered mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter? So what does that look like? Yeah. We, we forget about transgender Black Lives Matter and like all of, all of those things, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's still the same thing for, you know, in the Black community for autism or people with, um, or the elderly or whatever, it's not as, um, not as it's almost as an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I've been pushing for is inclusion. Um, I actually just wrote an article and CTS is going to publish it, you know, pretty soon about, um, you know, COVID-19 autism in the black church Mm. and how, how the, the quick shift to online, um, you know, spiritual formation did not include certain sectors and it did not include, um, families with autism, you know, they, it was a one size fits all in the beginning ministry. Mm. Everybody was just online preaching. And then the children's ministries came later mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And they were asking, I think, for parents to handle their own um, spiritual formation in their own household. And these, you know, these parents are, we're out. We are, yeah. we're doing therapy and we're trying to make sure our kids don't forget certain stuff. And they're already doing online learning. And so church a lot of times was like a relief. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but now we're also having to be um, responsible for the spiritual formation of our children as well. So it's just being having children on the spectrum has just made me to take a, a, a look at how um, cookie cutter some of our ministries can be, mm-hmm. I think, and how we can be excluding even within even within our own like community where it should be a safe space um, for everybody. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering as you have kind of gone on this this journey of learning about autism, of kind of helping educate your community, have there been unhelpful theological or spiritual responses or, or reasonings or explanations, the ways in which people have talked about autism as it relates to spirituality that have made you like at the bare minimum bust out a side eye uh, towards them? And, and what have some of those been? Yeah. And so I won't name the book, but I read a book that <laughs> there's been a couple of books about autism and spirituality, right? Okay. Or autism in your church or, you know, things like that, where there's like, there's supposedly this like theological explanation mm-hmm. behind autism and which I think is crap, right? Yeah. Or it's like, what is the spiritual connection between autism and, and um, you know, God or whatever? And like, it makes it different in some way, right. you know, and so it just really, um, you know, and, and it's sometimes <laughs> it's more than sometimes it's more than a side. I like, really, that's what we're doing. Right. You know, where are you getting your theology from? It's almost as if and it's not quite probably quite as offensive, depends on who you are, as how they try to use um, Christianity to justify oppression and, you know, mm-hmm. division and like all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's um, yeah, it's just been it's been frustrating, especially when I'm trying to you know, kind of do my research and, you know, you find out that like 33, and there's some studies that will tell you 33% of parents will have left their church because they felt like their children were not included. Um, 67% wow. of these parents feel like they cannot go to their churches for um, spiritual counseling 
you know, at their mm-hmm. own worship centers. Mm-hmm. And so um, because it's this pray it away or your child is going to be healed yeah. or, you know, this um, let's put oil on them and, and we're going to do a circle and, and bless them. And and maybe our children were not meant to be neurotypical. Maybe they were meant to stand out and be different. And, you know, and maybe they were meant to be unicorns. And that's mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For people who may have friends, family, community members that have children that are on the spectrum or just anyone in their life that's on the spectrum, um, what are things that they can do to try to offer support and to really try to live into that full embodiment of community? Like, what, what needs to shift in the way that we approach being in relationship to actually offer helpful support and healthy support to folks with, um, that, are either, that are caretaking for someone that has autism? Um, to, to be present. Mm. to be fully present. Um, it is one of the hardest things that we find is, you know, if, if you know, we want to go on vacation, if my husband and I want to go to the Bahamas or whatever, who in the world is going to keep our kids, mm-hmm. right? Who will be able to keep them and keep your cool if, if this child has a meltdown? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we have been blessed with some friends that, that just get it. Um, I have a friend of mine that has four kids and we had three and she was like, oh, just bring them over. Our house is already crazy, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. And so a meltdown did not bother them. They were not mm. embarrassed. Um, if you've never experienced, you know, if you have a mom that you know, especially a single mom, you know, the, mm. the divorce rate for any any um, couple that has one child with special needs is like 75%. Oh, so wow. then if you compound that with the divorce rate in the black community, or mm. if you have more than one child, right? So then the divorce rate is extremely high. So a lot of these moms or, and then, and then the, Sometimes the other parent or the dad, you know, mm-hmm. they will grieve um, it a lot differently than the moms do, mm. you know. Um, and so just just being someone that's there to listen, to to cry with them, um, to give them a break. You know, there are some moms that feel like they can't take a shower because they don't know what their kid is going to do. Mm. Um, some of these kids, they there's elopement. Elopement is when the child is like wanting to, to leave and run. Mm-hmm. And so that's exhausting. We had my middle son was like obsessed with Thomas the Train. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. so, and so the daycare had to take all the times and trains out the building because mm-hmm. if he found one, like he was going to spaz out. So then deci- he decided one day he wanted to come home because he had a train at home. Okay. And so they were like, well, Kyron tried that. to leave today. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, it's time for me to go. Um, so and but that wears you out like you're mentally exhausted. You're always watching. You're always looking for what's going to set this kid off. You know, my my son, um, we had somebody left a fork in the, in the on the plate and then they, you know, put the plate in the microwave and it had a spark. Mm-hmm. That was like 10 years ago. And he still will like start the microwave and take off running. And he's 17 and he's like six, three. Wow. Um, and not pe- not many people in our family would understand that. Yeah. So to be to be open to to be able to like you said earlier allow people to to show up as their full selves, mm. allowing our kids to be whatever they want to be. If if they want to um, repeat the whole movie of you know um, Lego you know Lego Batman or whatever mm-hmm. to each other, let them do that. Like don't say why is he doing that or that's getting on my nerves, um, but creating a safe space for those families to be where they can just relax and have their kids play and they don't feel judged. That is priceless. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, you know, your son being 6'3", I'm thinking to myself, wow, so like already being a mom of a black man can be kind of harrowing at times. You know, you're imagining what happens if they, he gets stopped by the police, et cetera. But, but I imagine you compound that with um, the complications of living on the spectrum and not 
the ignorance I think that that someone like a law enforcement officer or someone else in authority or power might approach or try to interact with your son with and then how they might misperceive his reaction. So can you talk about what you have noticed uh, when it comes to the intersection of like autism and race and how how do you adapt to that? How do you how do you address that? How do you hold that on a daily basis? Um, I hold it with with a a nice, healthy portion of anxiety Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I have Again, I have a 22-year-old, and he's a musician, so he likes to run around from church to church. And I'm mm-hmm. always like, you need to be in. Don't be out too late. Um, I have a, my 17-year-old. We are very slow in getting him his license because okay. of that very reason. He's tall, and if you yell at him, he'll he'll freeze up, and he, he won't, he won't mm. definitely, like, you know, like maybe, you know, do whatever you're asking him to do or obey your command. Mm-hmm. Um in my research, what I've done and what, what, why it's great to, that we went to CTS because um, they allow they push you and allow you to explore all these different topics. But um, there are incidences where police officers have harmed um, or killed uh, teenagers on the spectrum, mm-hmm. and it doesn't get as much like publicity as you know mm-hmm. your George Floyd's or Ahmaud Arbery's or or anything like that. Um, there was a young man. His name was. Um, Ricardo Hayes in 2018, mm. and he he was 18 years old, and he got out, you know, and his caregiver was looking for him, caught the police, you know, wanting to know if they could help, you know, them find him. Well, a police officer pulled up on him, and, you know, Ricardo walked up to the police car and did something weird with his hands. He could have been, mm-hmm. like, flapping, whatever, yeah. and the police officer shot him. Um, he wasn't murdered, but he he shot him and he said, well, he did something. And you can hear on the audio, he did something funny with his hands. I thought he was going to pull out a gun. Um, so that's one incident. You have Stefan Watts in Chicago, who um, his he was 15 years old. And on my birthday, <laughs> February 1st in 2012, um, his parents called the police because he was having an episode and wouldn't take his medicine or whatever. And I think he had, there was one story, one version of the story says he had a butter knife. Another version says he had a knife. Um, but either way, they shot and killed him. Mm-hmm. And the parents had called for, for help. Um, I think about stories like... Um, um, I can't even remember his name. Rushing, his last name was Rushing. Matthew Rushing, mm. um, where he was driving and hit hit somebody, and he left the scene. But then he remembered, oh, I have to go back, so he went back, and they have they put him in prison for fifty years for a non fatal car accident where he hit somebody. Um, he was just recently pardoned because he wasn't doing well. He wasn't healthy, you know, being in jail. But it, it took a lot of push from people mm. like Sean King and you know a grassroots movement and all of that to try to get him out. So it's it's hard to um, the intersection is very delicate because there there's only like four states that I know of that have like adequate robust autism training for their police department mm-hmm. um and so and a lot of times and i even contacted our local police department just to see what they had mm-hmm. and it's like virtual online training a couple of little modules it doesn't include having direct contact with anybody with autism or anything like that um tiny he coats made a statement in his book between the world and me that you have we have to man- learn how to manage our own bodies at a young age you know, especially as, as people of color, or as or black men. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you don't know how to manage your own body? Mm. What happens when you don't mm-hmm. know that a police officer is approaching me and you don't know how to um, shrink yourself so you don't seem as threatening, right? Yeah. And that is the challenge. And so um, what we've done before, we had a affair at our church where they were like, you know, ask a doctor, ask a police officer, ask this. We asked the, the police officer to put our son in handcuffs. 
um, to walk him through what to do with a, you know, from a police officer's perspective if he is pulled over. Mm. And he walked him through that and he put him in handcuffs so he could see how it felt so he would know, you know, not to overreact, to like be calm. Um, and so we did that for our oldest son. We have not had that opportunity to do that with the second one yet. Um, but I think even those little things will help them to try to stay calm, not, try not to like, you know, fight back or whatever because it doesn't feel right. And even then, that doesn't mean that that's going to keep them safe. But we have to do everything we can to give them a chance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is uh, definitely an additional burden on top of the burden that you already carry as a as a parent. Um, yeah. Wow. When should parents start asking those questions? When is it appropriate to actually start to wonder? And once you do start wondering, what do you do? Do you go to a doctor? Who who do you talk to 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 find out more? Yeah, so sometimes it's not as, as very subtle. There are some people that don't get diagnosed until they're like a teenager okay. because it's, they're, it's very mild. Um, if you notice that your child is not hitting all the right milestones, you know, if they're talking a little bit later than others, if they're not sitting up, if they don't have appropriate play, you know, mm. they're playing with like strange things. And some kids are just weird. I mean, I was, yeah. I was a weird. <laughs> you know, I read all day and I didn't want to do all the other stuff. <laughs> Um, so, but, so there's a healthy like balance there too. But if you just notice that something, or if they, they used to look you in the eye and now they don't, Mm. um, if they don't like to be hugged or if they, they freak out because, you know, their socks feel scratchy or if you change their routine and they have like a full meltdown because Mm. you didn't turn left and you always turn left, Mm -hmm. um, that may be something to look at. And there's a lot of different other like signs Mm -hmm. that you can look at. Typically, if you go to the doctor and say, I think something's wrong. Um, we're not quite right, right? And so they they have like all of these different um, surveys that they'll have. They'll have you do a, a questionnaire. They'll have the, the school fill out a questionnaire. His, the teachers will fill out one. And then based off of like all of the responses, then they can kind of say, yes, we think that your child is on the spectrum um, or no, it may be like something else, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, but it takes a community to kind of figure out both parents will fill out two two separate forms if you have two parents because I might experience my my son differently than my husband does, right? Yeah. They may avoid me because I'm like mean and I, I nag <laughs> him to death. <laughs> Whereas my husband is like he may be more chill. Right. Um, but then so you you include you know healthcare workers and you include your educators and you include the parents and then from a more um, collective holistic approach then you can determine where your child may fall. Mm. That's that's good. That's good information. Um, you know, finally, I'm wondering for other parents who are finding themselves maybe where you were 20, 22 years ago or um, that are they've just gotten that diagnosis. They're feeling overwhelmed, um, realizing these ideas they had about who their child might be or crashing down and they're grieving those and then feeling guilt and shame for even having those ideals in the first place, you know, like wrestling with all of that. What advice um, or perspective, what words would you offer them in this season? Um, I would tell them that they are not by themselves. There are countless Facebook support groups and, um, you know, places like spaces that we're trying to create to help, you know, families understand that you're not by yourself to help answer those questions. What do I do if I'm going to my first IEP meeting? I don't even know what an IEP meeting is. What if mm-hmm. they, what does this, you know, report mean? Um, and so there, and there's different organizations that will come alongside of you to help you if you need an advocate, if you need, a, a, you know, someone like a mediator. Um, if they're trying to tell you that your child does not need therapy, but you know for sure that they do. You know, there's a lot of parents that in Indiana, we have Article 7. Mm-hmm. You know, and Article 7 is like the list of all the things that the schools have to do if you have um, a child with a disability. 
And a lot of parents may not even know that that, that Article 7 exists. And so having someone that can kind of help walk you through it. My husband and I have been blessed over the years, too, which is why we, we said, okay, we need to start something because people kept bringing families to us. Mm-hmm. This person just got a new diagnosis. Can you talk to them? You know, this person just got a new diagnosis. They're very, they're very depressed. You know, can you, can you share with them? Mm. Um, so number one is having someone that, because no one else will understand what your day is like except another mom or, or dad that is living um, with uh, with a child with autism. Yeah. Say, so, yeah, my my son um, took off naked today. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, we've had that happen too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Sounds like Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like Tuesday. Um, and then also honor your grief. Your grief is real. Mm. Um, if we try to suppress our feelings, then we are suppressing parts of ourselves, right? And so you honor all of that. Honor your grief. Honor um, the things that are that are going to be different, how things may be a little bit harder for you, um, and that's okay. And then I am a proponent of, I think we, we all need Jesus and therapy. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, get some professional help, you know, get so that someone that can help you work through your feelings and um, make sure that you're not feeling unnecessary guilt or what is the trauma behind, you know, never being able to take your child to a family gathering. And you know that that's where that's life giving for you. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like and how you can work through, through those spaces? Um, so, yeah, so someone that understands you, someone that can a clinician that can support you um, and then honoring all of that and being being very honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Excellent tips. Excellent tips. Um, as we close here, I'm, I'm wondering if you'll just talk briefly about your work as an Autism Speaks Advocacy Volunteer Ambassador. What will that entail? What would you be doing? And then can you also speak a bit more to um, the group that, you're gonna, that you want to start called BASE? Okay. Thank you. So for the Autism Speaks component, I am so, so excited. Um, we get to pair up with legislators, with congressmen and U.S. state representatives, and help to push policy uh, for change. And so if there's a, a bill on the table, like recently they had one that just came up about, you know, how are we um, supporting families with autism with this virtual learning, you know, platform, you know, they may not be getting everything that they need. And so um, we are usually made aware of what some of those bills and legislations are that are coming up. And then we can contact our, you know, the one that the congressperson or our legislator that we're developing that relationship with and just say, hey, you know, I just want you to know that we, you know, we're pushing for this. This is how it, it would impact me and my family. So some, to make sure that when they are on the floor, it's not like, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher is not like another, oh, I don't mm-hmm. know about this bill, but they, they will know that it does mean something to our community. Um, and hopefully that that will help them to, you know, move in the direction that we need them to move in. Yeah. It's exciting. Um, yeah, it, 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 I'm very, very excited. <laughs> um, it's, it's like a dream come true because I've always wanted to. You can, you can make small change like locally, mm-hmm. you know, or like online or whatever. But when you can help push for policy change, you, you impact so many different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can help change lives. I know in the beginning they weren't covering speech therapy for our kids. You know, they're, mm. they were not, they would only cover, all insurance companies would, would only cover speech if you had it and you lost it. They were not covering developmental speech. So we had like, you know, thousands of dollars in bills, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until they started pushing for those policy changes that insurance companies had to start honoring um, speech therapy for, for that was more developmental. Mm. So it, may, it does make a difference. Um, as far as base, so Black Autism Support Society, we just recognize the the differences in how autism um, looks in our community versus others. You know, we have like four different 
um, pillars, I would say. So we're looking at the individual and family, um, education, spiritual formation, um, and then social justice. And so that way we are looking for, you know, how does the autism intersect with policing? And, and you know, are they um, bringing up policies and changes to make sure that that happens? Um, we're looking at education. You know, a lot of times these kids are very, very smart, but maybe they, they are struggling with um, remembering their homework or the teacher doesn't understand. And so, you know, our dream would be to be able to like develop a scholarship for, for children with autism mm -hmm. who maybe, they, maybe they, don't, they don't get a 4.0, but they work really, really hard and they're on the spectrum because those parents need, they need scholarship money too. Like <laughs> that, like water, right? Yeah. Um, individual and family, you know, we have, you know, where people, they may feel isolated or they don't, um, they don't go to the cookout or they don't go hang out or they don't go skating. You know, what does it look like to um, work, you know, for, for teenagers that need to go to work, but they have autism and so they're a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so like looking at some of those things too, where do you go get your hair cut? Who, who is the barber that can cut your son's hair mm. if he's having a meltdown, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to connect with the community in, in that way and offer some education. And then spiritual formation, what what does church look like for families with autism? There's countless videos on YouTube of moms saying, well, we made it we made it to the first, you know, song for the choir, but then we had to leave because, you know, a lot of times these families, they can't sit in the church. This church is too loud or the kids have a meltdown. The first church that I went to in Indianapolis when we moved here, my son was like, I don't like this. It's time to go. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was two years old. And he he threw, he had a tantrum, a meltdown. Yeah. And all the, all the older ushers were looking yeah. at us like, up, oh, that baby's spoiled. Mm -hmm. So what does it look like to educate these churches and to push for um, change? There, there's a couple of what they call autism clusters in, in the United States. Hmm. One is in Dallas, one is in Houston, and then they have a couple in the larger cities in California. Okay. And so in those areas, the of course, we have you know large churches like the Potter's House and places like that where they, uh, they automatically understand the need for um, special groups for spiritual formation for these families. But if you're outside of an autism cluster, like if you're in Indianapolis or you're mm -hmm. in Flint, Michigan or whatever, then it's an afterthought. Yeah. And so just kind of pushing for some of that. So that's that's basically our main focus. We, we would love to have a base cookout where we can have um, the solar train line and barbecue and all of that. <laughs> And let our kids spin around and play with bubbles and and shaving cream, just like a regular autism walk. But it would be like all black, like yeah. all black everything, you yeah. know. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and so that people can feel like they feel like they're they're still you know with the culture and they're still like engaged with hip hop and rap and all of that. Um, but and they don't have to like not bring their kids with them. Right. Like everybody's welcome. Yeah. Right. And when do you hope this? Uh, can I call it an organization? that a fair yes. term? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's prophetically call it that. Okay. <laughs> when do you hope this organization will launch? So we're, we have an online presence right now. So we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram right now. Um, we've done a couple of YouTube videos where my daughter has, um, kids like to see other kids play. Mm -hmm. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> and so what we did in the beginning, because everybody shut down around March and April yeah. and it was right before Easter. So we were thinking, how can we help families that are trying to like do Easter and that they can't be in church. So my daughter and I, with with Barbie dolls, mm -hmm. um, we created, we did like a video about um, Easter, Aww. and so we we put a beard on Ken and and made him look like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. But it is it was so dope. Um, yeah. So just trying to like 
just trying to get it started. So right now it's all online because of the pandemic. Um, again, we've got a published article. I had I had a proposal and I was accepted to, to go and speak at the autism, I'm sorry, disability and spirituality conference. Mm-hmm. But then that was canceled because of, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so but we're hoping post pandemic, we can do some more things in person because people need to sit in a room and feel supported. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to name that I haven't even thought to ask you about, Kimaka? <laughs> um, I would just name that for um, couples. I think it's a little bit different. I know with with um, if you're a single mom, is that's a whole different thing. Or if you're a single parent, that's a whole mm-hmm. different thing. Um, but with couples, it can be especially challenging because you may have one idea of how to parent this child versus, and that's in any any marriage, right? right? So yeah. you have different ideas about how to how to parent your children, but with couples, it can be extremely hard. So um, I would just make sure, I would just tell them that we have a team mentality here. We're team mm-hmm. Randall all day, right? So, okay, yeah. um, and my husband and I, we know that we've had to work through him wanting to like be tough on the boys because he wants them to man up and all of mm-hmm. that. And me wanting to like coddle them. And then there's a balance between what do we say is okay because of autism and and what do we need to hold our kids accountable for yeah um so i would say give give each other some grace and space um and just make sure that you're always working together you're you're co-captains of the same team Mm. um and you can only be as as successful as the heads of your team right if your coach is trash then your team is trash (laughs) Um, so i think my i have a heart for couples because their our divorce rates are so high um and so to be able to see couples together um, parenting these children is is remarkable, and it makes some it makes the world of difference. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today and for for joining us. It's been very enlightening for me, and I'm sure my listeners will think so as well. So just thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's, it's been awesome, and you're great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. To learn more about my guest Kimaka and all the wonderful work she does regarding autism please check out the show notes because that's where the links are going to be placed. In addition, if you'd like to hear my other podcast project that just launched, please check out the What Would It Take podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This is a project done in conjunction with Anabaptist World in which I evaluate hot button issues like police brutality through the lens of both politics and faith and ask the question, What would it take for us to create the society and the world that we want to live in? So please check out this new project. I'm super excited about it, and I hope you will be as well. You can find it on the Anabaptist World website, which is anabaptistworld.org, or once again on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please like it and subscribe. Finally, I have a lot in the works for 2021, so if you want to stay updated on new projects I'm dropping and new collaborations I'm involved with, please be sure to follow me on social media. You can find me at Benjamin J. Tapper on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to send me an email, you can do that as well. My email is benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper.